0: Hello, and welcome to the Buddhist Recovery Network
1: podcast. Today we have interviews with two individuals who have abstained from alcohol and drugs their entire lives. Vimalasara leads a discussion with each of them about their experiences, upbringing, and thoughts on substance use. Before we get into that, we'd like to remind you that Vince Cullen will be our next Academy teacher speaking about cabbages and condoms on July 4th at 1 p.m. Pacific Time. For more information, please visit our website, BuddhistRecovery.org. And now, please enjoy today's
2: podcast. Hi, Andrew. Uh, Thank you for being with me in the studio today. It would be great if you would introduce yourself and let people know who you are. Sure. Um, My name is Andrew Conroy. I'm an
1: audio engineer and studio owner in Vancouver, British Columbia. And uh, I guess pertinent to the podcast, I've been sober for 29
2: years now. 29 years? And how old are you, Andrew? I am 29. (laughs) (laughs) So that means you're a rare breed. I think we need to actually take your genes and clone your genes. (laughs) How have you, when you say you've been sober for 29 years, I'm going to ask you some questions. So have you ever smoked cigarettes? No. Yeah. Have you ever drank alcohol? No. Have you ever smoked marijuana? No. Have you ever taken any recreational drugs? No. You must do sugar.
1: Do you do sugar? Yes, sugar does happen on occasion. <laughs>
2: okay, on occasion. All right, so thank God you are slightly normal. Yes,
1: I, I am normal.
2: <laughs> but I know that our listeners will be very interested to hear about um, somebody who has uh, never ever, um, yeah, picked up a, an intoxicant. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah.
1: Mm. Um, I mean, when I was younger in In my teenage years, i was I was really into athletics, and i was I was a high-level competitive swimmer, and I also transitioned into triathlons. And when I was younger, my my ultimate dream was to go to the Olympics and represent Canada in swimming. And I always had this mindset of whatever I put in my body is going to affect my performance in the pool. And so, from an early age, I always thought I have to stay away from alcohol. I have to stay away from drugs, from cigarettes, because taking any of that could jeopardize my chances of going to the Olympics. Um, I mean, I, grow, I grew to a whopping five foot five, so my Olympic dream was kind of put on hold. And uh, I didn't end up continuing on with swimming past high school. Um, it is still something that I do to stay active and stay in shape. But I don't compete anymore. But that mindset sort of stuck with me that whatever I put in my body is going to affect my performance, regardless of what I'm doing, whether it's work or personal life or just day to day tasks. And, you know, I never had any interest in trying alcohol or trying any recreational drugs um, because. I always had a clear mind and I was always able to make decisions based on what I was feeling in the moment. And I never had to, uh, loosen up as, as people say, you know, I I never needed that. And I always liked being sober and being clean because I knew that every decision I
2: made was the right decision. There's so much I want to ask you, um, about the story. So I suppose the first thing is then, you know when we're young, we have peers and they're going to be people around us even if you didn't drink, you didn't smoke cigarettes. Mm-hmm. We know for you know many young people, especially you know even younger now 10, 11 and people are starting really young, especially with the vaping and everything, mm-hmm. you know kids want to experiment. so you would have been surrounded by people who wanted to experiment. Didn't you ever feel triggered or like or, or did kids tease you? You know, uh,
1: I, I found that when we're, when we are that age, we're always warned of peer pressure and, you know, you're going to be at a party or a friend's house or something. And people are just going to say, Hey, come on, man, try it, try it. I, I don't feel that's how peer pressure works. I feel that at least in my experience, yes, I was, I was around plenty of people experimenting with drugs and alcohol and, and trying new things, um, I was always offered. I always said no, and that was sort of the end of it. It never seemed to be a, come on, man, just try it, sort of atmosphere. Um, there, there were one or two occasions where somebody I didn't know would find out that I'd never had alcohol or, or never tried any drugs, and they'd be rather obnoxious and say things like, come on, get this guy a beer, get this guy a beer. Um, But overall, I found that most people, they would offer it almost to just be polite, I guess. Um, But, you know, once you turn it down, that kind of seems to be the end of it. And I feel that maybe a lot of this peer pressure is is pressure we're putting on ourselves to be part of the crowd, especially when we're younger. Mm -hmm. We want to fit in. We want to... Do what everyone else is doing, and sometimes it's okay to just say no, and you don't even need to provide an explanation. Really, um, you can just sort of say no and, and be content with your decision. But I think it comes from a place of confidence. I was always confident in my decision to not drink. I was always confident in my decision to not do drugs, and so when I said no, I knew that it meant no, and I think maybe that's uh, that's. Why I never succumb to peer pressure.
2: I mean that's really interesting, isn't it? Because many people can say no, and there can be a doubt in that no. Some people say yes, and if you and there's also a doubt in that yes. And actually, how can our no be a really firm no? Mm -hmm. So let's move on from peer pressure because that's one of the one of the ways that you know we could pick up intoxicants. And I'm really curious because. Actually, you wanted to be an Olympic swimmer and you did win medals. You did win medals. Yeah. 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 So you I mean, you were at the top of your game when you Mm -hmm. were were, were young. And I'm sure you're written in history books, you know. Yeah. So and because you didn't grow taller than five foot five, your dream was destroyed. Now, many people would turn to something to because they would be so devastated they'd be so devastated that this dream you know something it wasn't like you weren't winning medals you 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 were winning medals but you got to this point where it's like actually this isn't going to happen I'm not tall enough. I'm smaller in the pool. Those people who are taller, you know, no matter how fast I go, those people who go taller, who are taller, don't even have to go as fast as me. How did you deal with that? Deal with that? Well, you know, I think to this day, I still admire
1: athletes. Um, Despite working in music, I think a lot of my my idols, so to speak, are still athletes, and the thing that I really, really admire about athletes, and especially Olympic athletes, because they do it without the massive paycheck, right? Um, it's it's the ability to persevere, and uh, I, you know, when I had to stop swimming because it, it just became unrealistic for me to continue on thinking I would make the Olympics. When I stopped, it was still that sort of mindset. So previously, you know, I had to persevere with my training, with my racing, and and try to get the best time that I can and try to win at a certain swim meet, certain events. And now the goal had changed. It was I have to persevere. I have to find what my next step is. What is my career path? What am I going to do with my life? And how am I still going to incorporate my love of swimming into my life as well? Um, So it's just a matter of perseverance, and that's something I really admire in Olympic athletes especially, because they put their bodies through hell trying to attain the ultimate goal, making the Olympics, winning an Olympic medal, setting a world record, and a lot of them do it um, with very little recognition, and I've just always admired that, and so I strive to keep that mentality in my life, even though I'm not a competitive athlete anymore.
2: What were some of the medals that you won as a swimmer?
1: Uh, I was winning uh, club nationals, which is sort of uh, age group nationals in Canada. Uh, I won uh, 200 backstroke, 1500 free, uh, some relays. Uh, I won at provincials many, many times. Uh, I used to hold a couple Canadian records, they don't stand anymore. Um, And I still hold various meet records, club records all over the province. Um. yeah they, they're they're slowly coming down I think one of the last ones I have is actually at my old high school but I think that'll probably
2: get broken in the next couple of years and I I mean that that's kind of amazing and I just really want to ask when you realize that your dream of being an Olympic swimmer just isn't going to happen just because physically mm-hmm. your body wasn't made for it was you upset did you have some sadness
1: Um, you know, I, I was definitely upset there. There was a lot with swimming. It, it wasn't just, you know, I wasn't growing high or I wasn't growing tall enough. There were a lot of factors, you know, swimming is a very tough sport and, um, I don't think I was on the right team anymore. And there were other factors and yeah, I I was definitely sad. I had found a, a, a much greater passion in music. So, I almost feel that it worked out for the best because now this is what I do every day is I make music and my love of music definitely eclipsed my love of swimming. And so I was sad. Um, but at the same time I realized I now had more
2: time to do my other passion. Who did you speak to? I mean, when, you know, when it came to this realization, were there people you could speak to about this?
1: Um, You know, I don't think I really spoke to anyone about this decision now that I think about it. Um, It was just sort of something that I came to realize. And um, I never had any frank discussions with anyone. And looking back at it, I probably should have. Um, At that age, I I don't think that I necessarily verbalized it or came to terms with it properly. And it wasn't until I was older that I was able to sort of... uh, piece it all together and realize that, yes, this was the right decision at the right time, and I enjoyed all my time previously and afterwards. Um, At the time, I probably should have spoken to someone, whether it was my parents or coaches or teammates or just friends in general, but I didn't really have that conversation with Mm -hmm. anyone.
2: So how did you cope with it? Okay, so you didn't reach for the drugs or the alcohol, which many people would have, but Mm -hmm. there would have been a way that you would have coped with it.
1: How, how, How did you cope I got really into music and, um, specifically audio engineering and recording music. And I just went, uh, you know, I, I replaced all the time where I would be swimming and training and doing all those things. I replaced that with, with recording music and I started working in recording studios. Um, I got my first job in a recording studio at 17 and, uh, it was like 16 hour days, 18 hour days and so I, I kind of just blocked swimming out of my life. It was a complete change, um, but I went head first
2: into music, and just so you found that. a distraction, yes, and a, a distraction. And, and a healthier one of the healthier distractions. You found yes. a distraction to cope with it, yeah, because Absolutely. as we say, there are there are three ways we mm-hmm. can turn away from from sad experiences, and and one will be you know, picking up the drugs or the alcohol. Another one is through blame, self-blame, blame of others. You know, another one is self-pity or, you know, distraction, you know, and that's what you did and and, and well done. And So I'm really curious about your, your childhood. Do you have siblings? I do. I have an older sister. She's six years older than me mm-hmm. and
1: uh, she's married and has two kids. Um, she was not as as intense of an athlete i mean she played soccer and softball growing up but she wasn't an athlete the
2: way i was um did she ever pick up alcohol or anything like that
1: oh yeah i mean she she drinks socially um but
2: uh nothing really more than that Mm. yeah and uh your parents what was it like what were your parents like,
1: uh, my parents were great parents. I mean, they drink socially. Um, actually I was just, I, I was just talking to my dad the other day and he told me that, um, they had more or less stopped drinking. Um, and he noticed how much money they had saved from that. <laughs> uh, they, they weren't big drinkers. Um, they, they did like wine and they would have a little bit here and there. Um, But they're also getting old. You know, my dad is 71 now. And uh, the other day I was talking to him and he had mentioned how they had sort of stopped drinking wine. And he noticed just how much money they were saving by not drinking wine. And I can only imagine, you know, they they were not heavy drinkers at all. I can only imagine how some people spend a lot of their paycheck on alcohol. So, yeah. Did you have a happy child in the household? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it was... um, My childhood was very happy, very supportive. My parents were always supportive of what I wanted to do, whether it was swimming or music or triathlons, whatever it was. My parents were super supportive. Um, You know, I, I really had a very, very privileged upbringing, and I recognize that. Not everybody has, you know, a home with two loving parents who are supportive, and both my parents worked, but they always made time to get me to swim practice or to just be at home and spend time with me. And I recognize that that's, you know, I'm very, very fortunate to have that.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's great that you recognize that uh, privilege, you know, to have a, well, it's what you say your parents gave you, but I would say that all of us experience some kind of dysfunctional, trauma in in a family and uh yeah you're saying right so can you tell me
1: (laughs) about the dysfunction i think the dysfunction comes from my extended family um Mm. (laughs) you know i've i've got uh i've I've got a weird uncle who uh denies climate change and and hates on everyone who's who's not a trump supporter uh (laughs) you know i've 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 got those kind of relatives Mm. um Luckily, I didn't have to spend too much time with them growing up. But I think that's that's the family dysfunction for me is the extended family. Um, yeah.
2: Sure. Because I do think that, um, I mean, it's interesting, a, a child who, you you know, you got yourself into swimming and then it's like when that didn't happen, you didn't even speak to your parents or anybody about it and you got yourself into music. So this is somebody, a young person who learned to distract themselves and learn that it worked, that you, you, you know, it's like, if music, I can imagine if one day it was like, you couldn't do music, you'd find something else that you could really distract yourself with. And it's like, you know, I'm just kind of curious why, why would um, somebody need to distract themselves so much? Yeah.
1: Right. Um, I don't know. Uh, it's not something I've really actively thought about. Um, I think distraction Is one way of looking at it, I mean, I I don't think that it was necessarily a distraction. I I really had a love and a passion for music that, you know, I, I played in bands in high school, and it wasn't until I stopped swimming that I could really spend all of my time focusing on music. I think it was just almost like two competing loves and passions, and one sort of had to fall away to give way for the other. Um. And I don't know if it's necessarily distraction. It's it's more just uh, keeping my mind active, mm. and and staying, staying on course that way. Because the mm. last thing I want is for my mind to go. Um. You know, I I have a a grandma who is getting older, and I don't think she does much to keep her mind active. She's in her 90s now. And I, I'm watching her deteriorate mentally and she doesn't have dementia or Alzheimer's or anything like that. But seeing someone lose their, their mental faculties like that, it, you know, it, it resonates with me because it's something that I never want to happen. I want to be mentally all there all the time. So I think it's not so much a distraction, but more just making sure that I'm always going to be mentally active and, and, and mindful.
2: Was you ever aware in childhood of anybody losing their mental faculties or being around anybody with um, mental health issues?
1: Um, I, I mean, my wife has mental health issues that I help mm-hmm. her deal with, um, and you know, lots of lots of my friends have. I dealt with some anxiety when I was younger. Um, I, I don't currently deal with it. I, I feel really lucky in that I was able to manage that. Mm. you know, with, uh, therapy and, and actually uh, that's when I discovered Ratna was when I was dealing with, uh, my anxiety issues. That was when I was about 16, 17.
0: Mm.
1: Um, meditation helped with my anxiety a lot. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, I, I helped my wife with her mental health issues and, and, uh, we, we always sort of joke around that I'm her primary caregiver because I make sure that she that she does the proper self care and that she's that she's feeling fine. And, you know, it's important to, to take care of that.
2: Yeah. And just ask, you know, just coming back to this, this decision, because I'm still just really curious about that, that you, you made such a, an important decision and you didn't speak to your parents and you didn't speak to your coach. And why did you think they would judge you? Did you, why, you know, can you think why, 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 why didn't you speak to anybody?
1: Um, I think when I was younger, I had a hard time, um, really putting together the words to describe what I was feeling. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed it when I reflect on other periods in my life, I've noticed there were certain events, certain instances where now I can say, this is what was wrong. This is what I was feeling. And this is why I did what I did. But at the time, I, I guess I hadn't matured to that point yet. And so you're right. I think maybe it was I was worried about the judgment from my teammates, from my coach. Um, It was easier to just leave and and not talk to anyone about it. Um,
2: Avoidance behavior, really. Yeah, because I imagine there would have been a lot of pressure on you, not just you wanting to make it to the Olympics. I imagine your coach would want you to make it. Your parents would want you to make it. So it's not, yeah, a lot of pressure yeah. yeah,
1: there was, there was a lot of pressure. Um, you know, swim coaches can have the right intentions, but sometimes don't go about it the right way when they're coaching younger kids. Um, lots of screaming, lots of yelling. And I think that probably drove a lot of my avoidance is, you know, I, I didn't want to be yelled at and, you know, called a quitter or, or anything like that.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you found a way mm-hmm. to deal with it. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. yeah. So what would you say to our listeners? You know, uh, the the majority of our listeners are people who struggle with addictions or who have had addictions and they're now in recovery. What would you, what would you say to them?
1: Well, in my time working in a recording studio, I've worked with plenty of people with addictions issues. I've worked with heroin addicts. I've worked with alcoholics. I, I know how difficult it can be and I know that it can be a struggle I think the most important thing is to love yourself and love the people around you and to focus on positive distractions like we talked about earlier um, finding things that can be positive in your life whether it is music or athletics or your children um, there's so many so many great reasons to stay sober. I mean, personally, I, I know I can't speak from a place where I can compare the two, but I've always loved that I can remember every instance of my life and I can always make proper decisions because I'm always in the right frame of mind. And I think there's such value in that. And I, I wish that everyone could have that mindset. You know, we, we can all just stay on the right course and be mindful and sober.
2: Thank you for that. We need more people like you. I think it's very important for people to know that actually some people have never, ever picked up a cigarette, a drug or alcohol. We just assume that's what just everybody does. But actually there are people in the world who just don't pick up those things. And so it's just wonderful to have you uh, on our program uh, talking about your experiences. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, Javel. It'd be great if you could introduce yourself.
0: Yeah, uh, my name is Javel. Uh, I'm a photographer in Anchorage, Alaska, 27. Hmm.
2: You're a photographer in what? Tell me that again.
0: In Anchorage, Alaska. That's where I live.
2: Oh, okay. Whereabouts is that?
0: Uh, It is...
2: Close to Canada, but still a part of the U.S. Oh, I'm so ignorant. I hadn't even heard of it. Which border of Canada are you close to? So I guess I'm close to, like, the
0: west side of Canada. But Alaska, Alaska is a state. We're the 49th state.
2: But oh, right. Uh, yeah. Oh, you said Alaska. Sorry. I didn't hear it. you okay. So Alaska. Yeah, of course. I, of I course, have heard of Alaska. So I'm really sorry. I've been, I've been to Alaska. Very oh, beautiful. Where? Oh, I did the cruise, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 the cruise, yeah. So it's not really Alaska doing the cruise, is it? Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's it's more Alaska than a lot of people in Anchorage get to see, so.
2: Right, right, yeah. So um, thank you for um, speaking to me um, today. As you know, our listeners uh, are very much um, in recovery or struggling with addictions, and I really wanted to speak to you because I hear – that uh, you've never, you've never smoked, you've never drank alcohol, you've never taken any drugs. That's correct. Never have. So I'm like, how comes? how <laughs> how how did how did you manage that?
0: Uh, I guess in in the easiest way to put it, I just never, I was never curious. Um, growing up, I was always a tinker. I'd always have hobbies. I'd be interested in other things. And I was just so consumed in my other hobbies that I never really looked at those things and said like, oh yeah, I want to try those. Um, I've been pretty fortunate to to be able to gain an understanding of things just from observation and never really needing to participate. So that mentality just kind of carried over into drugs, alcohol, all that sort of stuff. I, I never had any issues with friends partaking or, you know, it just wasn't me. You know, I never shamed anybody for doing it. I just it just wasn't my thing.
2: So did you have any peer pressure like people saying, "Hey, have a blunt. Hey, have oh, a drink."
0: Yeah, peer pressure left and right. And even even some of my closest friends today will still try to try to see like, "Oh, is, is this going to be the time? Like, you going to do it or?" They'll ask me all these crazy scenarios, but um peer pressure's never really has never really worked on me. Um mm-hmm. Ever since I was little, I've just kind of been stubborn. So, if I say I don't want to do it, it's, I don't want to do it. Um, and the only time I get frustrated is when people continue to ask. But a lot of a lot of people they just they they stop trying. They know it's not going to happen.
2: So you break the stereotype, okay? You break the stereotype because, like, you're blackmail. You don't smoke ganja or marijuana. You don't drink. You do drugs. Like, uh, how did you manage to break that stereotype? What was your family conditioning?
0: Um, the family conditioning was pretty easy, honestly. My my mom, she wasn't a big drinker, and she passed when I was really young, so I didn't really have any opportunities to observe her mm. doing any type of stuff with alcohol or drugs. Um, I think I saw her drink a couple of glasses of wine here and there. And my dad, my dad... I've never seen my my father intoxicated like my entire life, like he's had beers and he yeah. loves wine, but to my knowledge, I've never seen him drunk. There's been one or two times where I've kind of seen him like a little tipsy, but he's always ever since I've known him um he's never let himself get past a point of control uh when I'm around so I think I just had some good role models.
2: How old was you um when your mother died?
0: Uh, I was nine years old.
2: Oh wow. Yeah. And how did the, did you have any other siblings?
0: I have a half brother and sister back in Trinidad, but
2: right they're, right. they're over there. So. Okay, so you were left with your just was it just you and your dad? Mhm. When yeah. So how was that how did how did your dad deal with it? What how how was that dealt with?
0: Um it was hard to understand how he was dealing with it at the time, but uh in my, my dad and I's relationship it was kind of strange because I was raised by my mom for the most part. You know, my dad didn't come to the U.S. until I was like four-ish or so. Hmm. Uh, and he always worked the opposite of what my little kid's schedule was. You know, my, I was a kid, so i go to school, i come home. And when I came home, he'd already be at work, and he wouldn't come back from work until middle of the night when I'm asleep. So we didn't really have a lot of interaction. And so when my mom passed, it more or less felt like we were two strangers, just kind of stuck with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and he my, my dad's a hard worker he, he tried his best there was a small period where he needed a break and so I went to go live with my and uncle in South Carolina but both of them like they neither of them drink I, I don't know if my uncle's ever done drugs mm-hmm. or anything like that so but when I came back from South Carolina my dad and I just kind of we realized like hey this is the situation we're in so let's just make this easy on both of us so I think that's part of why I never I guess that, that just added to my disinterest in drugs and alcohol was because I knew that a lot of those things, if I ever went down that path, it would just make things difficult for my dad. Even if I wasn't out here being like a wild kid or anything, it just I didn't need to put any extra pressure on my dad
2: how did you deal with the pain because you know the stats would say you know if we think of the ac report the adverse you know child experiences you know you having a death in the family coming from you know single parent etc you are high risk for turning towards alcohol and and drugs how how did you deal with it what what did you do what did you turn to
0: just those hobbies, gaining those interests at an early age. Um, music. Uh, I was really interested in music. I was interested in photography. Uh, I like being outside. Um, I just consume myself in those things. I had a pretty good network of friends at the time, like the, the two or three guys that I was close with. And so we... I, I lived on a bicycle, basically. I just mm. rode around all the time, and I didn't think about it.
1: Mm. That
0: was it. I didn't. I didn't fully sit with my mom's death until i was probably 12 or 13 so a couple years had passed until i really like let it sink in and i got to actually grieve but um for the most part i just consumed myself with so many other things that Mm. just seemed to be more of more value to me
2: so if we if we think of uh addictive behaviors being more than the substances or the traditional alcohol, drugs, gambling, would you say you have any other addictive behaviors? Like, you know, if we open it up to like the internet, to sex, to food, to porn or whatever, would you say you have any other addictions?
0: Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, I think that by nature, when, when I find something that I find interesting, I dive deep. When it came to my interest in photography, I dove so deep. Uh, up in Alaska, we have pretty relaxed firearm laws. So when I got interested in guns, I dove deep. Uh, mm. that's just, that's just my personality. Like when I'm interested mm-hmm. in something, I don't want to just dip my toes in it. I want to go all the way into it. I want to see what this is all about. I want to be able to understand it from the front and back, um, mm. just so I can better experience it. Mm. So outside of, outside of substances, I definitely say that I have characteristics of an addictive personality. Those just haven't carried over to substances, but they're mm. definitely present in my life.
2: And what would you say some of those characteristics are?
0: Um, I'd say that sometimes I, I i lose I lose track of time when I'm into something. Like I'm just so consumed with it. Mm. Um, if I get pleasure out of that thing, then I just mm. want to. I think about the next time that I'll be able to do that. Like if I'm when it comes to photography. You know, when I was when I was in college, I did a couple of years at college. I would skip class so I go so I can go take pictures because mm-hmm. that seemed like a, it was more fun. I was like, why am I in class? I could be out taking pictures. Oh, it's a nice mm-hmm. day. Oh, it's a bad day. Oh, it's this and that. Like I can always be out mm-hmm. doing photography. So I started skipping class to go take pictures. I started calling into work to go take pictures. Um, these are these are characteristics of addiction, you know, mm-hmm. so it may I mean, not be a
2: Sure. I mean, if we think of the four C's of addiction, which is compulsion, the compulsion to use, the craving, using despite the consequences and actually having a lack of control, would you say that any of those uh, speak to you and your behaviors? I think
0: so. I think so. Um, And, you know, at the time, it was definitely a bit reckless, but I didn't Mm -hmm. I wasn't concerned with that. I just know mm. I wanted to do it. I knew that mm. it brought me pleasure. I knew that it made me feel good, so I wanted to do it. I was like, I'll, mm. deal, with, I'll deal with what happens when it happens. But for now, I know I need to go take this picture.
2: Mm. 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 But I still want to say to you just, like, well done to not to, – you know, these things in society like alcohol and drugs, which are so around there, and for you not to use them. I mean, do you have anybody in your life who has addictions? Have you ever been connected or related to anybody with addictions?
0: Yeah, um, I have a couple of cousins, my my closest cousins, the ones that were in Alaska when I was a child. Uh, One of them has struggled with addiction and mental illness his whole life, and I haven't really seen him. Uh, Last I saw, he was... uh, homeless and not doing so well so if i see him i really just see him out on the street and i'll try to flag him down over the past few years it's like i don't know if he just doesn't recognize me anymore he just doesn't want to talk but he he doesn't give me the space anymore um and then from that same side of the family just a few a few people who have just kind of lost sight of where they're going. Yeah.
2: And has that been difficult or do you think that's put you off just seeing members of your family in addiction? Um, No,
0: I guess, but that's part of like a a deeper reasoning. Like my, my relationship with family, I would say is definitely, it's an odd one. Um, I don't feel, I don't feel close to a lot of people uh, and I don't feel close to a lot of my family. Like I have, maybe two or three members of my family that I'm like, yo, these are, this is my my family. I love them, but everyone else, uh, I don't feel, I don't feel any real connection. Like I don't feel that blood is warranting of a, of a special bond. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, we share some DNA, but that you're not my people at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. I think, I think a lot of that has to do with being raised in isolation, um, being so far away from my family, be it, uh, immediate or extended, but, not being in close proximity to them and not really interacting with them. It's, I mean, it's hard to care about somebody that you don't interact with.
2: Have you been to Trinidad?
0: I've been back to Trinidad when I was like six for for a month or two or so. And and that was, I have a sister in Trinidad. I have a brother in Trinidad. I never met my brother. Um, Talked to him on the phone once on accident, saw a picture of him. Uh, a year or two ago mm. but my sister we, we like instagram dm every now and then she's mm. she's cool people but mm. what brother and sister those are just words i mean these people are more or less like distant cousins
2: mm. so for yourself like just growing up being a, a black male in 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 the u.s have you experienced racism or
0: yeah um direct and subtle you know especially i i'd say for me, it's more subtle, like workplace related. Um, I've had a few instances, instances when I was younger, you know, wow. uh, just being a kid. But I definitely am more aware of it now. Like, And, and I'd say one of, the, one of the biggest examples that I see is um, when it comes to my photography or like the work that I do in the Anchorage community or in the Alaskan community. Uh, for the longest time, my work did not have any of my personal, like you could find my work, but you couldn't find me. You couldn't find a picture of me. You couldn't find a bio or anything like that. You would just see the work because I was so fixated on the idea that I want, if I'm getting a job, if somebody's hiring me, if somebody's contacting me, I want them to contact me strictly off the, the merits of my work because they feel I'm the best person for the job. Um, I didn't want, cause I ran into a bit of a, a bit of a time where people were like, oh, he's, he's a black guy in Alaska. Like, oh, we got to talk to him. And the novelty of being, you know, black in Alaska was, it was a, a decent way to get my foot into a, to a door, you know, to get into that room. But you can't rely on, on novelty to keep you in a room. You know, it's gotta be about the work. It's gotta be about the, the, it's gotta be more than that. So, I was getting a little fed up with that, so I didn't want any traces of my personal self to be associated with my work. And so a lot of times people would contact me and be like, oh, can you come by and talk to us about this? Can you do this and that? And I'd show up to the office and security and look at me like, who are you? What are you doing here? You know? Or they'd be like, are you lost? Are you, are you this or that? And I'd be like, oh, I'm here to meet such and such and so and so. And a lot of people, they'd always say like, oh, I didn't, I didn't expect you to be like, this or that they would never say the words like oh, i didn't mm. think you'd be a black guy mm. but they're saying it every which way they'd be like oh mm. you're different than i expected or you know your your tone over email made me think something else i'm like mm. this is me this is who i am mm. um so i see a lot of situations like that uh and it's, it's just goofy i think that's definitely shifted now because now i just i lean into it you know um not so much the novelty aspect of it but I don't try to hide my identity. I'm just like, yo, this mm-hmm. this is what you're getting. Um, I'd say I definitely see a lot of a lot of like small steps when it comes to class and race, um, and the two kind of dive in and out of each other. But that's what I see more so. Mm-hmm.
2: And is there much um, addiction visible in Anchorage, Alaska, where you live?
0: There is. There is. Um, it is it is rampant in Anchorage. It's, it's pretty bad, uh, on the outer cities like Wasilla Palmer, it's pretty bad. And more so than that in the rural areas of Alaska, these villages, substance addiction is just rampant in a lot of these communities and they don't have a, a lot of resources to really combat it. Um, one of the, one of the saddest things, if you live in a rural community and you're struggling with addiction, um, Oftentimes, their method of trying to resolve the issue is to buy you a plane ticket to Anchorage and wish you well. You're excommunicated from your community and mm-hmm. sent to Anchorage. And a lot of those people end up anchor- end up homeless in Anchorage.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it just keeps going. Um, my friends and I own a small art gallery in downtown Anchorage. And our name, the name of the gallery is similar to the name of a, um, an addiction clinic. And so Mm. a lot of times we'll get, it doesn't happen so much anymore. Uh, but when we first opened up, we'd get phone calls and we'd have people kind of wandering into the gallery, seeking the clinic. Um, Mm. and we'd have to tell them like, Hey, we're sorry, this is not the place that you're looking for. And we try to have to help them find that place. Mm. Um, but yeah, just, just instances like that, just, they made me even more aware of Mm. what the situation was like in Anchorage. I mean, I I live downtown, I see it, I see it, I interact with it day to day, but that just increased the awareness for me.
2: What would you be saying to our listeners now, people who are listening in, people who are perhaps in recovery, people who are struggling with addiction, what would you be saying to them? Um,
0: I'd say I get it, everybody everybody goes through struggles, and being in recovery – I don't want to sound hypocritical because as someone who hasn't personally experienced this, um, I do understand that it's hard, but also that asking for assistance is the first step towards recovery and also not faulting yourself for, misstep, for missteps and relapses because they, they are a part of your recovery story. You know, if you take a few steps forward and you stumble, that doesn't mean you give up. It's still a part of the process. Mm-hmm. So trust in the process. Um, I know a lot of people got, their, their ins and outs about AA and other programs that are rooted in, in religion. But at the end of the day, there is a lot of effort that goes into these programs. And if you put in the work, you can't see progress and just being tenacious, it helps.
2: And what would you be saying to young black men? We just know that the, the black male body has been weaponized and not just the black male body, the black trans body. Is also being weaponized as well. I mean, what would you be saying to those communities?
0: Oh man, um, I would. I would say, know, know yourself, and know what you're talking about. Um, you're going to go into a lot of situations where, uh, and I, w- I was just talking to my partner about this too. If you go into a situation where somebody says something and you're faced with the option of reacting. Or you know, being passive, you you really got to choose your battles, um, because there are so many times where somebody will say something, and my gut instinct is to react. Uh, but you can you can react, and you can educate them, but you just have to be so mindful of the way that you. It, it, it being black requires a lot of tact and a lot of finesse, because if you try to educate somebody on something, they can be so dismissive. So quickly. And I don't i don't think this is just pretending to black people. I think this is something that a lot of marginalized communities face. But yeah. if I if somebody says something to me or like, let, for example, if somebody says, well, why can't I say the N word when I'm singing a song? And I explain to them why it's like, oh, that word is not for you. You shouldn't have an issue with it. They can be depending on my tone or how I speak to them or even how much I move my hands while I'm talking. They can be so quick to say, oh, well, you just an angry black guy, you know. They'll Mm. like they'll remove power from your speech Mm. based Mm. on your tone. And so I I was talking to my partner about it the other day and I was like, don't give them anytime you have to explain something to somebody, calm, cool and collected. Don't give them any reason to second guess who you are, Mm. you know, Mm. because the moment that you show any bit of passion, you know, they're going to dismiss that passion and they're going to call that anger. Mm. They're going to call that attitude. They're going to call that uh, emotion, And they won't they'll be like, well, how can we trust somebody who's arguing rooted in emotion when really that's that's not where it's coming from. You know, your your points are still valid. Um, So, yeah, to to tie it back in, that's what I would tell uh, anybody in a marginalized community is like when when you speak, don't give anybody a reason to discredit you. So stay calm. Keep a level head. Don't let don't give them anything to write you off with.
2: And I like, I mean, it's interesting when you talk about, you know, if you come from a marginalized marginalised community, don't do anything that would discredit you. And yet we know in marginalized communities, whether it be black, queer, women, poor, whatever, that actually out there on the streets is where a lot of the dysfunction, the drugs and the alcoholism takes place. Is that actually, and those are the things that can discredit our communities.
0: That's a fair point. That's a fair Mm. point. Mm.
2: Yeah. So, yeah, that, that, um, so just, yeah, finally, um, just some words of wisdom, what it was that you did to keep yourself free from those intoxicants of drugs and alcohol.
0: I just, I found things that brought me joy. Mm. Um, and I leaned into them. I think for me also, this is, and I mean this, it, it comes off like a joke, but I mean it in a serious manner. Drugs and alcohol are expensive. Like, you grow up poor, it's it can be difficult to gain access to these things. Um, so, not saying that that had any factor for me, but uh, yeah, I just, I got into things that didn't require... Funds or having to get a hold of something. I Mm. I didn't need a fancy camera to get into taking pictures. Mm. I just had some little junk from a thrift store. You know, Mm. I didn't need uh like you give me a basketball, a football, anything like that. I'm outside having fun with my friends, Mm. so that worked for me. I know that's not everybody's deal, and especially in different like. Sorry, I'm I'm getting a little tongue tied, but. I know – because I, I should have mentioned this earlier, but in Alaska, uh, it's it's not uncommon for us to have long winters. Mm. Like I'm sure you've heard about like the, the 20 hours a night and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. In the summer, we get 20 hours of daylight. So, yeah, th- those things do take a toll on people. Seasonal affective disorder is, is real mm. and seasonal depression is real. But just finding things that energize you and keep your mind active and keep your body active, that's going to be the best way to combat some of those feelings. Mm -hmm. that may lead you towards paths Mm -hmm. that aren't um aren't as beneficial aren't as positive to your life
2: Mm -hmm. okay thank you thank you for sharing your time Yeah. yeah
0: i hope this uh i hope this is is good for you i appreciate the time and i appreciate meeting new people
2: Hi, I'm Vimla Sara, President of the Buddhist Recovery Network. Our mission is to help promote the use of Buddhist teachings and practices to help people recover from the suffering caused by addictive and or compulsive behaviors. Our organization is a volunteer-run non-profit which has expenses. We offer free monthly live teachings on the academy, Free resources on our website and all our podcasts are free. We also organize a bi yearly summit where many of us come together. We rely on the generosity of you, our listeners, and our interviewees, in order to produce these offerings. We are asking you to donate to help with our expenses. Thank you. And to show our gratitude. For your support, all Patreon supporters will receive access to special guided meditations. To unlock these, please offer your support by going to patreon.com forward slash Buddhist Recovery Network. Again, patreon.com forward slash Buddhist Recovery Network. Thank you so much for your generosity. May all beings be free from the roots and the causes of suffering. May all beings be at peace.